Thank you. Good morning, church and associated listeners who might be listening to this on some media. Thanks, Aaron. At some undetermined point in the future. Very exciting. I think Drew's going to be checking up on me, <clears throat> making sure um, things are uh, all in order here. And Lord willing, they will be. Um, my name is Bobby Pearson. Uh, it's my honor and privilege uh, to, uh, uh, to preach uh, to you this morning. Again, welcome to the Blue Ridge Church of Christ. We're uh, very excited to be here. My family in particular is very excited to have electricity after being without for 31 hours. Anybody else lose power? Yeah. Still out? Who's still out? Oh, man. Pray for Jim. Pray for Jim and the, and the Sabulas. Um, Amen. Yeah, we, but seriously, I know that's no fun. Um, it, was, um, it was helpful. It was um, an illuminating experience, no pun intended, uh, to not be illuminated for a while. Um, it was actually helpful uh, in preparing the sermon, uh, various topics we'll be talking about. I got to do some of my preparation by candlelight, which, which felt awesome, kind of traditionalist like that. Um, I was looking forward to uh, finishing the sermon, you know, by, by quill on parchment <laughs> last night. But the power came on at 7.15, so I got to finish uh, the, uh, the new-fashioned way on my laptop in bed like that. So, <laughs> amen. Um, we're going to uh, pray and then uh, jump into it. Dear God, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for, uh, for today. We thank you for the, um, Lord, the... Uh, Honestly, we thank you for the creature comforts that are not needs, uh, but are wants. Uh, We're grateful for all of the blessings uh, that we enjoy living in the the modern world. We don't appreciate the things that we have until they're taken away. God, I pray that that gratitude, uh, God, that we can apply that and uh, and, and understand gratitude towards uh, towards deeper things, towards spiritual things, towards things that truly are our needs. I pray today that you will please speak through your word. Uh, please, um, uh, please speak through, uh, uh, through, through, through everything that's said and done today. And I pray that it'll, that it'll be holy and uh, honorable and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you could start turning over to Philippians chapter 2. As a church, we've been going through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Um, I, uh, I've been, uh, Drew told me that I'd be doing Philippians 2 while he was out at the campus retreat, which turned out to not happen. Um, and uh, I've been, uh, you know, my stomach's been churning because if you've ever read Philippians before, you'll know that Philippians 2, 1 through 11, today's text, is really the high point of the whole book. So if I blow this, what, you know, what's going to become of our, of our Philippians uh, series? <clears throat> but uh, amen, Drew's been, uh, Drew's been building up to it. If you've been here for the last, I think, three weeks uh, he's been laying the groundwork, because Paul lays the groundwork uh, for this great Christ hymn, for this great uh, exaltation of Jesus Christ uh, in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Uh, and it's all part of this great command that Paul gives to the church uh, about selfless service. So we're going to read and, and jump in here. Uh, Paul's writing to the Philippians. If you remember chapter 1, things are going pretty well. The um, uh, the, the general attitude of his letter isn't like the letter to the Corinthians, where honestly everything is going bad, yeah. and there's all kinds of crazy nonsense happening. He's like he's saying you're discovering new ways to sin, and you're you know you're, you're you're you have factions pitted against each other, and the whole thing is falling apart. But I love you, and Jesus loves you, and let's pick up the pieces. No, 
to the church in Philippi, he's saying, I love you so much. I have such great memories with you. I know you love me. You guys are awesome. Let's, let's keep traveling this road together. Let's, let's, keep, uh, let's keep on towards maturity. Let's continue towards sanctification. That's really the attitude that Paul has uh, in the letter to the Philippians. So with that in mind, we're going to read 1 through 11. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, he's not being sarcastic, there is encouragement in Christ for his audience. If there is any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, you know, there's a lot of that, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This is the high point of Philippians. And if you notice, there's a rising and a, uh, there's a falling and a rising action in verses 6 through 11. Um, the, the words that Paul uses take Jesus from the highest point, from being equal with God to being emptied, a step down, taking the form of a servant, another step down, being born in the likeness of men, big step down. You know, there are ways that Jesus could conceivably have emptied himself and been a servant without, being, without taking on human nature. Right. Other, other religions have this concept where, where a god will come to earth in, you know, as sort of an avatar. That's a, that's a Hindu concept um, where it's really a god, but just kind of looking like a dude. You know? um, and, and, this, and this god comes to earth and does some things, and, and they're recorded, and, and it's awesome. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came down to take on our human nature fully. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. So not only did he become a man, he became the most humble man who ever lived. It would have been enough for Jesus, the Son of God, to simply go from impossibly, infinitely high as fully divine to be a man. Just period. That would have been amazing. But he became a man and then the most humble man ever Being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death. So not only was he super-duper humble, his humility resulted in death. And not only did it result in death, but it resulted in the most shameful and impure of deaths. He He took on ritual impurity for our sake. So it's this falling action from the very heights of being equal with God to being even lower than any other person on the face of the earth. So we went from the very high to the very low. And then there's the rising action. Therefore, God has, exalt, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus is Lord. 
Jesus is equivalent, again, to God. Jesus, as, as the Trinity, that's the concept that we have to try to understand this amazing thing. Jesus went from <clears throat> emptying himself, in a sense, of, of, of divinity to become this, this incredibly low, the lowest man. And then he's exalted again to be again at the right hand of God, all to God's glory. <clears throat> it's an amazing thing. It's the core of the, of the Christian gospel. It's the core of who God is. And, um, and Paul wants to unpack this. He's been leading up to this point, and everything else after this point is kind of working out the implications of what this means. But there was, there was a particular issue that Paul wanted to address in the Philippian uh, church. It was in Philippian society, Roman society, and you kind of get the sense, reading between the lines, that the church was at least tempted by this, by this thing, and that is selfish ambition. He says in, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 15, he says that, you know what, there, there, there are some problems here, that there are some men who are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. I'm going to read that here. Verse 15, chapter 1. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. That's kind of crazy, right? There are Christians who are preaching, who are, who are saying true, doctrinally true things about Christ, but they're doing it out of rivalry, presumably rivalry against Paul, envy towards Paul. They're trying to build up their own position. They're trying to, you know, jockey for position against him. Um, it seems like there was some element of vanity in this, you know. Look at me. Look how great I am. Some of these preachers uh, were, were, were they, they had this attitude. The Greek word for it is eretheia. And the, and the definition that I found in Strong's Bible Dictionary is electioneering, which should, which should hit us, you know, in a particular way uh, t- today. We, we know all about elections. And just hearing that word, electioneering, like, oh, I get that. I know what that is. It's advancing one's self-interest, trying to tear down the other, right? It's trying to, uh, it's trying to get a leg up on the competition and to say, look at me, look at me, and this person is bad, and I'm good, you know? And it's a common idea in a Roman city. Uh, the, the, the whole political life, the, the whole public life of a Roman city was political. Uh, Roman society was organized as a pyramid, you can think, with on top being Caesar Augustus, the, the god emperor, you know, the, 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 the fellow, the very mortal man whose, whose whole identity was that he was actually this divine being and everybody was looking up to him, right? Um, the, um, uh, his, his, his power, his might, his ability to make and break lives and careers with a single word, that's what everybody was looking towards, and that's what everybody was climbing up towards in Rome. If you wanted to advance in Roman society, if you were a soldier and wanted to be a centurion, if you were a centurion and wanted to become a governor, if you were a governor and wanted to become a senator, if you were a senator and wanted to off the emperor and become, you know, the emperor on, on your own, you, 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 had to be, you had to embrace eretheia, electioneering, intrigue, advancing your own interest and tearing down others. With such an organization, everybody is always scrambling to get to the top and is willing to do anything to get there. And, you know, the, the Philippians seemed to be maybe letting this infect their own congregation, perhaps just a little. Paul wouldn't be saying this if it wasn't some kind of a problem. And we can even get this wrong. God forbid, but we do. 
I don't, know if, I don't know if this is still around, and I certainly don't want to reintroduce it, but back in campus, we had this idea of kingdom stock. Anybody ever heard that before? Uh, okay. Um, you know, a, a, a brother would get up and give a, give a testimony, and, you know, he'd be well-dressed and look good doing it, and he wasn't dating at the time, and the guys would be in back, kingdom stock is rising. Watch that guy, you know. A sister does a solo, and we're like, kingdom stock, way up, way up. And so it's this really, you know, warped, twisted way of, of thinking uh, that we nonetheless do to our shame. Um, but the, the whole idea is there's this pyramid, there's a ladder, and you've got to get up that ladder. And you can't get up unless other people fall, you know. If, you're, if your Bible talk leader doesn't show up, well, and you step in and give a great Bible talk, ooh, kingdom stock, that's power move, power move, you know. And again, to our shame, that happens sometimes. Uh, thank God we don't have, uh, you know, thank God we're not, we, we, we don't have like struggles for leadership in the church and we're dead set against that. But they had that in Corinth and we're not beyond it. We're not past it. Corinth had warring factions vying for control of the directions of the church. Um, so maybe we don't struggle with that. But we certainly can try to advance our own self-interest through the opposite way of being lazy and avoiding service. Avoiding being up front, avoiding, avoiding serving in the ways that we don't want to serve. That's just as much self-interest as trying to seize control in a bloodless coup. Amen? Right. <clears throat> it's a perfectly natural thing, although it's sinful. It dates back to Genesis 3. We're going to read Genesis 3, uh, starting in verse 4. Amen when you get there. Yeah, this, uh, this desire to, to, to put yourself forward, to grasp as hard as you can and never let go of power and, uh, and, and prestige and influence. In Genesis 3, if you need help finding it, it's right after your, your table of contents. <laughs> Genesis 3, starting in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die if you eat the forbidden fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They took hold of that forbidden fruit. They, they hung on tight. Um, you'll have the special knowledge was the temptation. You'll have that one thing that you've always lacked. I don't know if this, I don't know if this strikes a chord for you, but I, I give into this way of thinking quite a bit. If only, if only me and Audrey could just sell our house, then the bounty would come in and everything would be great. You know, if only we could stop, if, if only we could stop having to do this certain church thing, then our schedule would open up and it would be awesome and everything would be great and we'd become these great people that aren't always running around doing things. We lie to ourselves. You know what I mean? I think I got an amen from Audrey on that. <laughs> um, you know, everything will fall into place. We just have that one thing. Adam and Eve selfishly grasped the apple with both hands and we, as humanity, has never let go. But that's not Jesus' way. If you want a title for this uh, lesson, it's Follow Jesus to, Down to the Depths of Service. I may have told, yes, it's actually The Depths of Service, if you want the proper title. The command is to follow Jesus down to the depths of service. You got it right, Aaron. I, I, I mistexted. Point one, 
let go with one hand so you can reach out to others. You know, when, we, um, when we're tempted to, to grasp hold, to take hold of our life, to have that control and say, I'm going to do this my way. It's like, you know, if, if you can imagine, you know, holding something that tightly, you can't do anything with, with, with either hand because you're grasping. Paul says, in, um, Paul says in Philippians 2, he says to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I can't look to the interests of others as long as I'm holding on to my own interests tightly with both hands. A common objection to the Christian ethic of service is that, oh, well, I'll... I'll lose myself, you know, or my, my life will spin out of control if I start caring about other things or if I'm just serving all the time. Who's going to pay my bills if I'm, just, if I'm just being this incredibly selfless mini Jesus? That's a really a straw man argument, I think, but it's one that we all make, I think, at times in our hearts I have. Paul teaches us to serve others and care for others' needs within the context of assuming that we are aware of and we are attentive to our own needs. Let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Philippians 2 here. Okay. <clears throat> he says in Philippians 2.4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the needs of others. He uses a similar principle in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, in talking about marriage. In the same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Paul, is, Paul tells husbands, you know, you've got to love your wives as you love, meaning are attentive towards and care for your own needs. Okay? A husband, and this speaking from experience, it's hard for a husband to adequately love his wife if he doesn't take care, in a sense, of himself. I know this was a concern of Audrey's back before we got married because of the state of my automobile. <clears throat> His name was Leon, and I loved him. You know, it's it, it awesome, awesome car, 98 Dodge Neon. I can tell you stories about him. Um, but uh, I really didn't take great care of him on the inside. And Audrey looked at that car, and I think she said that her dad had said that a man can't take care of his wife unless he takes care of his car. Did I, did I make, am I making that up? Sounds like her dad. If, 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 he didn't, if she didn't say that to me, I maybe absorbed it just yeah. from being around her, her father. Um, but, uh, you know, if, guys, if, if we're not, if we're not, if we don't have our act together in, in at least some basic way, it's going to be very hard for us to care for the needs of others. The ideal that Paul is advancing isn't you're going to let yourself go, you're not going to shower, you're not going to brush your teeth, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to, you know, live in some in, in, in a clean environment. You're just going to be living in squalor, poured out for the lives of others, and then and then you're going to die and feel good about it. No, that's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a high standard of selfless love that's rooted in our own understanding of how we need to take care of ourselves and then applying that to other people. Amen? Like, I know that I have needs. Why don't I get it through my head that maybe other people have needs too? And maybe, just maybe, if I can make this, you know, cosmic leap in my brain, I can take care of other people's needs. I can be looking out for them just as I, you know, automatically should be looking out for myself. 
And amen for boundaries. You know, you, you, can't, uh, it's, you can't show hospitality and let your house get torn up every single night of the week. Amen for boundaries. It's physically impossible for one person to meet all the needs of all 85 members of our church uh, all the time. We do need to learn to delegate. We need to learn to step aside and let other people serve. And maybe we need to help make that happen. That's something that's very hard for me. It's a lot easier for me to just kind of swoop in and do something good and feel good about myself, but kind of prevent other people from growing and serving. If that's the problem for you, I encourage you to repent. Um, Find the needs and, and find the abilities and try matching them up. That's, a, that's an act of service in and of itself. Um, so amen for boundaries. But really the point is, <clears throat> the, more we, the more we try to control our lives, the more, we try to, um, you know, the more we try to make things the way we want, really the farther we are from God's, from God's ideal, from God's plan, God's desire and design for your life. As Princess Leia said to Grand Moff Tarkin, the more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. I think it's a kind of a universal principle, right? The tighter we hold on. Anybody Star Wars fans with me? Yes. Um, even more obscure references. 38 Special said, hold on loosely. Hold on loosely. That's, that'll, that's, a, that's no good a reference. I took that out for a good reason last night. 70s song. But Jesus said it much better. <clears throat> what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? What good does it do any of us if we, if we, if we spend all of our time crafting and molding and gaining control of our own lives only to completely miss service to other people? Only to completely miss everything that God has planned for us? What keeps us from participating in, uh, in, in Jesus' mission? What keeps you from participating in, let's say, for example, the church's existing service projects? We have, um, we have the Laurels. It's a great project where we, uh, where we just once a month, we go, to a, uh, we go to a nursing home here, and we sing, we play bingo, we talk to them. You know, we give that, give that physical touch that they just don't have often from friends or family members. We listen, we listen to their stories. It's a real ministry. It's awesome. We also have I Was Hungry, a food, uh, food delivery program. We partner with, uh, with another church in town and also with the USDA and local, uh, local grocery stores. We're able to deliver food to 120 uh, households every month. Yeah. I did the math. Jesus fed 5,000. We get to do that every, every three and a half years. We, we deliver food, more or less, to 5,000 households. Uh, every, you know, if you add it up, once a month, yeah. 120 people, 120 households. It's pretty awesome. We get to participate in the work of Jesus by doing this. Those are just two projects that we do, but what's keeping you from either participating in that or, imagine this, finding your own, finding your own way to, to serve and to give. I decided early on the purpose of this sermon is not to make sure that we have sufficient participation in church's programs. You know, it's not about that. Not at all. It's about... Um, it's about following Jesus in his service. And if, you know, if, 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 we, if I was hungry, it just gets by with six people a month, but the whole church, all 80-some others of you, are doing something else in, in faithful service of Jesus, amen. That's a win. That's an absolute win. But what keeps us from participating in these things? For me, it's comfort, self-preservation. For me, it's all these things, really. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, I, 
we all work hard, uh, you know, either in our work or in our studies or parenting or some combination of all three. Um, work hard on the weekdays, and we just want to kind of let loose on the weekends. We, we, we want to we be comfortable. We want to preserve ourselves. We don't want to overextend, and there's some fear in that, a fear of being out there, a fear of taking on more than we can handle. There's that desire for control. Talked about that already. And really, we've already filled up our lives so much and don't want to change. This was my thing at UVA. I think all UVA students, they're all out right now, but maybe you can, maybe you can relate. When I was a student, I would gauge my own worth by how busy I was. Yeah. And I think that can continue today. Um, as long as I have a, a full day's work at the office and then an activity or something outside of that, I think I'm done. I'm booked. I'm set. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part, and, you know, I've, I have a full life, and I can't add anything to it. Well, Jesus looks at that and says, well, what's, what's, my, what's my in? What, what's, my, what's my part of your life? Or have you already, is your dance card already full? Yeah. I want to give us a challenge. It's a challenge to myself as much as to you. I want you to take a moment to define selflessness. <clears throat> what does it mean to truly be selfless? To do something not for your own benefit, but to do something for the benefit of, of another. You know, what is, what is the definition of selflessness to you? And perform this week one act of service, one act of selfless service for a neighbor. That neighbor could be a church member here, a Christian, or not. Could be, it could be your physical neighbor, it could be a coworker, could be a family member. They're sometimes the hardest to, to serve. But do one act. Of some, somebody's laughing in the back about that. I don't know. Um, do do one selfless act of service for a friend, family member, coworker, a neighbor this week. This week, and and we have plenty of opportunities. There's I was hungry. There's the laurels. We've already mentioned those. I don't think either one of those are this week though. So find something else. Um, <clears throat> one of the ones that's most challenging for me is reaching out to a to a disciple who has lapsed in their, in their attendance or in their faith or has completely turned their back on God. That is, that is one of the hardest conversations, and I avoid that at all costs. That is a selfless act of service to me. You might enjoy that kind of thing. I don't know. Um, you, you, might, you might get fired up about that. It's, it, there's, there's nothing in it for me in, in doing that. Um, I, get, I get awkward. I get uncomfortable. I don't want to be there. I don't want to hear what the person has to say because it's just going to bum me out. That's selflessness, being willing to be in that position, to take on, to, to bear the brunt of someone's sin, at least temporarily. That's selflessness. Again, it's not about filling the roster sheet. It's not about making sure we have enough children's ministry volunteers, although talk to Sharon if that's, <laughs> that would be a great challenge for you. Sharon Fix is our children's ministry coordinator. She could, you know, church needs your help. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the challenge is to perform one act of selfless service this week. And we have all these objections. We have these natural, these natural fears that jump up. And it is fear and it is faithlessness. For, for me, I can say from experience, it is fear and faithlessness. Um, and it's also possibly in seeing uh, other people just as problem factories rather than being the image bearers of God. You know, um, when I, if, if, if I talk to somebody who's, who's, uh, who's fallen away, who's backslid, or you know, whatever your terminology is, um, it's very hard for me to see them as someone for whom God sent his son to die and God has already 
put the stamp of his, of his divine self on them in the same way that every other human being carries the image of God. It's hard, point two, it's hard to understand other people as God values them, but we have to. God sees people as worth the death of his son. And sometimes we pull back from helping uh, other uh, humans because they're human. <clears throat> yeah. I do. Yeah. Which is really the point of Jesus becoming human in the first place. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by looking like other men, by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself. Remember the falling action? I encourage you, go back and read Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 11 again. Each, each verse, each, each phrase is a step down in the, in the chain. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross. He assumed human nature. So how can, we, how can we look at another human and say they're not worthy of help? Jesus took on human nature. We can help. We can view each other as, as worthy of our time and energy, our selflessness. Paul used three different verbs to describe uh, what it was that Jesus did in becoming a man. He said the, the verbs are translated variously, but taking on the form of, morphe in the Greek, looking like, so having an appearance of, and also sharing in the nature. It's three different Greek uh, verb constructs, but the effect is, and each one of them kind of means a different thing. Each one of them takes a different angle on, on what it meant for the divine to become human. Uh, but the effect of it is to say that Jesus' humanity was, com- was complex and profound. He differs from us in the fact that he had no sin in him, but he still had human nature. It's a puzzler. I encourage you to go back and, and, uh, and meditate on that. But somehow he was human but didn't sin. It's pretty amazing that Jesus became like one of us in order to save us. And the implication of all of that is that we have intrinsic worth despite our sin. You know, the, the worst, the worst of sinners, you can, you can bring somebody up, uh, you, you can bring somebody up in your mind. The classic one is Hitler. Today, uh, the, the dictator of North Korea, when you know what he's done, it's pretty easy to think, yep, worst of sinners. Yep, I, I have some things that I would want to have done to him. The implication of all this is that our worth is not defined by our sin or our righteousness. Our worth is defined by God, who has already given it to us and has already given us his own image. Do you believe that about, I'm not even going to ask you to believe that about the dictator of North Korea. Do you believe that about each other? Do you believe that, you know, you should believe that about the dictator of North Korea. But do you believe that about the, per, the difficult person in your Bible talk? Do you believe that about the person who you tend to avoid in the fellowship break? Do you believe that about maybe the person with whom you're studying the Bible and you're exasperated? Yeah? Do you believe that about, about your own family members, about your child who refuses to obey? Do you believe that about the difficult people? Do you believe that about Christians, about non-Christians? Do you believe that? Jesus' incarnation is a challenge to us. When, when, when we think about how Jesus became man, how can we despise other men? Jesus didn't despise us so much that he couldn't become like us. And finally, point three. I challenge you to connect your service to Jesus. And this is a, this is a temptation for me. I'm kind of a duty-driven guy. I, Audrey, my wife, keeps our schedule, and I will, I will do the things on the schedule. You know, woe to me if I do not do the things on the schedule. But, you know, 
Um, but I, that's, that's kind of always been it. I need something on my calendar, whether it was as a student or as a you know, single or married, whatever. I need things on my schedule in order to, in, in order to keep going. Otherwise, I just sort of, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like uncooked dough. If I'm not in a form, I just go, you know, and it's, it's a bad scene for everybody. Um, I, I, I need a form to sort of, to yeah. give me to, to to give me shape and some discipline, yeah. um, but say, so, man, um, my temptation is to just do church stuff, right? Maybe you're like this, maybe you're not. Um, my temptation is okay. Is there a thing on the calendar? Great, I will do that thing on the calendar, and I will I I will do it, and I will assuage my own sense of guilt that would happen if I didn't do it. That's kind of how I am. I don't know how you are. That's not connecting my service to Jesus. That's not really being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, right? Yeah. Jesus fed 5,000 people and comforted the bereaved, and then he raised their loved ones back from the dead. We can't do that, but we can comfort the bereaved. Jesus touched people who hadn't had any human contact in years. Jesus did all of these things, right? When you deliver food... In the I Was Hungry program, you know, when you, when you, when you hoof those, those bags up, up all the flights of stairs, do we still take the stairs or do we do the elevator now? Elevator. Awesome. Okay. When you, when you easily ride that elevator up to the eighth floor, we used to take the stairs. Um, <clears throat> when, you, uh, when, when, when you take the bags to those people uh, who really don't have often great friendships, relationships, and you can be a... You can be a point of sanity and, yeah. and uh, you know, human contact that they don't often get. Yeah. When you do that, or when you, when you talk with a, an, an older person at the Laurels, or you have some unexpected encounter uh, with a needy person as you go about your day, there, for me, there are five ways it can go. I want to list them, and maybe, maybe you can connect with one or all of them or none of them. I don't know. My default is to just get the job done. Okay, I have a thing I have to do. I have to take these bags to this person. I need to deliver them, make sure that it's, it's set, and I need to move on to the next set of bags. Get, get in and out with the least possible inconvenience and discomfort. That's really me at my worst, actually. Um, just get the job done. If there's somebody asking for money, okay, I, I have a dollar. I'll give them a dollar, and I'm going to not make eye contact. I'm just going to do this so I can do it. Okay, That's kind of the worst way of, of engaging, I think, for me. The worst is doing nothing, but that's the worst way of engaging. My next step up, kind of, this is more my default, is to be nice, you know? Yeah. Just to smile and think kind thoughts and try to suppress those judgy thoughts that we get sometimes. You know, like maybe you should clean your, your apartments, that, you know, taxpayer-funded apartment, those, those judgmental thoughts, yeah. amen? Um, so just suppress those, have a happy face. Um, and just kind of leave a good vibe. There's nothing in that that's specific to the service of Jesus. Like, you know, somebody who doesn't believe in God and is doing a United Way Day of Caring could do that just as well as you. There's nothing special about that. I mean, there's something good about it, don't get me wrong. But there's nothing necessarily Christ-like about that, and that's my default. Next, this is here, here we're getting into actually discipleship territory. I can consider how Jesus would serve this person. Okay, I'm delivering food to somebody. Um, there's, a, there's a bad smell in the house. There's one particular apartment I, I deliver to uh, every month. And when I bring the kids, they're like, we don't want to go in there. You know what? We're going in there. Consider how Jesus would serve this person. 
Don't just run in and out with your, with your, with your, with your breath held. Respond by imitating Jesus' good works. Imitate his example. This is the most straightforward way of, of discipleship that a student would have with their rabbi. And it's, how, it's what life looked like during the three-year ministry of Jesus with his disciples. They would watch him. Hey, you see how he, how he healed that woman? I've seen him heal people at a distance, but he went up to her and touched her. That's crazy. I don't want to do that. I guess I should do that. I'm Jesus' disciple. Well, touch her. Do that. <laughs> um, you know, maybe baby steps, baby steps. But, you know, the, but, but the apostles really grew into it. We know by, by the end of their lives, they were, they were amazing men who had fully taken on the, the emulation of Jesus in their, in their hearts. That's the next thing. Consider how Jesus serves and then go and do likewise. Okay? The next step is to consider how Jesus is present in the person you are serving. That's kind of like the next thing, the next level. When, when all we do is think about how Jesus served and then try to do that, we tend to put ourselves in the place of Jesus. And we try to put our, and we tend to, we have this human tendency, to put ourselves over those we serve, right? If that's the only way we think about it. How can I, as a representative of God, serve you? It can get ugly that way, inside, even as we're smiling and doing good things. So the next step is to consider how Jesus is present in the person that you're serving. Matthew 25, verse 40, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. And then we consider that and respond in love. Like, wow, this is Jesus who's living in this apartment that does not smell good. How can I run in and run out? I got to stay here. I got to have a conversation, even if it costs me a little bit, even if it's unpleasant. I can ask if there's anything I can do. You know, if I can, I can see this person as, as, as Jesus, in a sense. That's challenge for me. And then finally, we can also consider how Jesus has served us already. So it's not just about me serving this person. It's not just about you giving a dollar to a homeless person. You can consider how Jesus has blessed you and think, I'm just, I'm just responding. I'm just replying to God's grace with this little thing of my own. And what could I possibly do to repay what Jesus has already done for me? Um, Drew has talked about this before. There's the dance of the graces, the kadis in Greek, where, where, uh, where, the, where the patron blesses. And then the recipient of that blessing is like, wow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this thing. And it's kind of like the dance where you take the thing and, you know, you, you take the movement and then you pass it on to the next guy. You know, you take that and then you pass it on and you extol, like, like Rashawn said, you extol the giver. And you make your giving all about what you've already received. And it's awesome. And consider that dance of grace. Those, these are all the ways that we can, th- these are all the things that we can have going on in our hearts when we serve. By following Jesus down, this is where we're going with this, by following Jesus down in this path, Jesus started way up here as God, at the right hand of God, and he, he, went, he took a path all the way down. I, I wanted to find a good image of a hike down into the Grand Canyon, a treacherous, rocky path going down and down and down, but I couldn't find a good one. So just imagine it in the, in these falling, the, in, in the falling metaphor. We're following Jesus down. He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He let go of his privileges. He let go of all of his rights. And we're, and we're called to follow him down as he does that. As we follow him down, we can follow him back up, being raised by God in a new life, receiving treasure in heaven, joining our brothers and sisters 
from all over the world over the past 2,000 years who have also bowed their knees and confessed with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. Without following Jesus down, if we just sit back, we reduce Christianity to a spectator sport. That's a dangerous attitude to have. We say, oh, you you, you go ahead, Jesus. I'll take my blessings in a to-go box. Thank you. We're not participating in his service. We expect to be served, but not to serve ourselves. It's a dangerous thing. And I warn you, and 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 I encourage you not to go that way, but to consider all of the needs around you and to respond in a Christ-like way, not in a human way. To be, to be, like, to, to be like Paul, who, who, who imitated Jesus by, by you know, keeping one hand on his own life, but leaving one hand free to serve. Not by being like Adam and Eve, grasped with both hands, thinking only of themselves. In conclusion, I want us, church, to follow Jesus down to the depths of service. Jesus didn't show up as a hologram to dispense some ethical teachings, right? And then zip back up to heaven as soon as he was done. He became a man who sweated, who suffered hunger and thirst. He needed friends who turned out to be unreliable in order to demonstrate personal incarnated love for your benefit. Jesus didn't take a quick bullet for you and then pop back up to life three days later saying, glad that's over with. It cost him quite a bit. Didn't cost nothing, the grace. Jesus lived a full life of humble service. From the age of 12, when we first hear about his childhood, to the age of 30, he obeyed his parents. And he humbly fulfilled his duties as a son, even though he was the son of God. His three-year ministry was characterized by selflessness. He rejected the eretheia, the, the, the jockeying, the politicking of his day political advancement and power seeking. He said, you know, he, he, he told Herod, you go tell that fox. I have, no, I have no need for your games, basically. When people tried to make him king, he said, absolutely not. The Gospel of John says he did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in a man. Yeah. <clears throat> Jesus didn't play that game. It, his ministry cost him everything. His death, his death started with betrayal, imprisonment, Hours of suffering and sleep deprivation and ended with six agonizing hours on the cross. Only to be resurrected, vindicated, and glorified on the third day. Everything about his life, everything about his resurrection teaches us what God really thinks of as greatness. Not jockeying for position, not being great in the world's eyes. Being great in God's eyes is service. In the kingdom, remember at the very beginning we talked about the Roman power pyramid with the emperor at the top? I think it's most useful for us. If you have that in your mind, the kingdom, in the kingdom, that pyramid is inverted. It's flipped upside down. Roman society looked up to the emperor who raised and lowered men to positions of power uh, that suited him. The senators, the governors, centurions, and soldiers. They all tried to advance themselves. Remember what John the Baptist said to the soldiers. They said, what do we do? He said, stop extorting money from people. Stop abusing your position. They, he said that because they were abusing their position. That's the way of the world. The kingdom of God is different. We follow Jesus as he calls us downward, not upward, not into greater positions of authority and influence and power. We follow Jesus downward to greater positions of service. That's his way down to the depths. We don't do it for a momentary burst of self-esteem. 
We don't do it for something to post about on Facebook to feel good about ourselves. Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You can't do that when you're telling everybody all the awesome things that you're doing, you know, like that. So spiritual. Um, That's not what we're in it for. That's not what a disciple is in it for. We serve out of a love for our Lord, out of a desire to be like him, out of gratitude for the ways that he's graced us already, all out of proportion to what we could ever possibly do in return. We serve out of an eager expectation that God's reward is eternal. God's reward isn't like the fleeting thrill of satisfaction you get from a good Facebook post and getting 10 likes. You know, God's reward is eternal. It makes anything else in this world look paltry and cheap in comparison. God's reward is eternal. It is fully satisfying. It is fully vindicating. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that there is a better life, a better outcome for you down that, down that hard path downwards into service? Or do you think that your life is only going upwards toward greater power, authority, and control. Let's follow Jesus, church. Let's follow Jesus this week down to the depths of service. I challenge you to perform one selfless act, selfless act of service for a neighbor this week and see what God can do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.